0: This is the Jan Arden Podcast. Breaking news. Well, we don't have breaking news. Hi, it's Jan. Welcome back. Thanks, all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us. We've got such a great show for you. I'm here with Caitlin Green, Adam Karsh. How are you guys doing? Okay.
1: Lovely. And we do do kind of have breaking news because um, season two of A Certain Someone's Show is coming back on Monday. I mean, I feel like that... That qualifies as needing the official do 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 breaking news intro.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting. We have uh, Leah Gauthier and Jenica Harper are joining us today. They are co-creators and the right main writers of the show. We have a group of five writers that are absolutely wonderful. But yeah, they're going to tell us just a little bit about how do you get a television show made, kind of their backgrounds, which are completely different. Um, just to, this isn't a spoiler, but Sarah McLaughlin is our first guest. She's first up to bat on episode one on Monday night on CTV. Let me just say this: Sarah McLaughlin is a good sport. Sarah McLachlan is really strong. You do not <laughs> want to fight Sarah McLaughlin in a dark alleyway. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, so tune in just to see her. Uh, she sings a little bit. Um, it's just it's a wonderful first episode and. A lot of questions from the cliffhanger of last season kind of get answered. Anyhow, thank you so much for being with us today. Right out of the gate, we want to talk about today's quandary. I'm passing it over to you, Caitlin.
1: Okay, so we received a quandary, which I think is kind of timely for many, many people right now um, dealing with like a ton of news, political views, all that stuff. And this was sent into our wonderful Twitter account, which is the Jan Arden Pod um, on Twitter. And so we got a little message here. So this week's quandary comes from Lindsay. Thank you for sending this to us. Hi, Jan Arden Pod, quandary of the week. We choose who we want surrounding us. We also choose who we do not want around us, like racist bigots. But what happens if that person is your father? I love my family, but we are completely different people.
0: Wow. Um... Uh, This is so common. I think this is a big quandary. The political divide in and of itself with even we, we see it with our friends with, you know, Trump or not to Trump. Uh, I know that causes a lot of rifts in family, even in Canada, the progressive uh, aspect and the liberal aspect. I think more now than ever, they really are split. There used to be like blurred lines. A lot of the parties had similar platforms. They, they believed in the same things. We certainly felt that way in Canada. We felt like, listen, we can't lose. We can't lose with either party because they're Canadian. They're going to do their thing. But now, um, yeah, racism is big. It's, there's been such a huge shift with the BIPOC movement. Um, and I don't know what I would do. I know that my dad in particular used to say things that would send me. And I don't know how I would have navigated that as a young person. Cause I was kind of scared of him, to be honest. So, I, I mean, gosh, what, what, Caitlin, like what, what, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I know that you've dealt, you're younger than me, like,
1: yeah it's tough it's tough to deal with because you obviously love your family members and you love your friends and having differing views from them on anything can be, um, you know, a real source of contention. And especially if you spend time together, especially if you're having dinner together, maybe you're having a few drinks, voices get louder, inhibitions go down, who knows. But I think that when it comes to certain topics, this is again, me personally, uh, I saw funny, like there was a tweet about this or or a meme that was going around that said, you know, well, we can just have differing opinions. And I thought, yeah, we can have differing opinions on pizza toppings. You know, this was the, this was the crux (laughs) of the joke. We can have differing opinions on television shows, we can have differing opinions on things like that. But when it comes down to views that are harmful on a societal level to a race of people, uh, a sexual orientation, a gender, I'm going to draw a pretty firm line in the sand. And it's going to be that if you can't, if you can't discuss that in a constructive way, if you're saying things that offend me personally, and I know are contributing to, let's be honest, the downfall of society, I don't want to hear it, and I think that's at least I haven't had to do that with anyone in my life personally. Thankfully, I do know some friends who've had to, and they've had to leave it at the, you know, the old. We're not going to talk about religion and politics then. Like we just are not going to discuss it because you uh, you don't want to get into an argument every time you spend time with that person. And if you're always arguing with them, it's going to have such a bad effect on your relationship. So you gotta you gotta call it sometimes.
0: Marianne Williamson is is a really great writer. She's written a lot of. I'm gonna, I'm going to call them self. Help books, but they are much more in depth than that. Uh, for a while in the United States, she was actually running. I think for the Democratic ticket, um, she was.
1: She was an interesting candidate. Yeah.
0: Uh, anyway, she something that she wrote years ago really stuck with me. And and she's not the first person to have said it, certainly, but she wrote, uh, "Do you want to be right, or do you want to have peace?" And so. I'm going to have to sort of side with you. Well, I am siding with you, Caitlin, that if uh, you have to, you know, lay your guns down. I think to engage in something that's going to cause long-term rifts, that's going to have someone jump up from the table and throw their napkin down and leave their meal half finished and and walk out of a restaurant um, or a a a family gathering, I just don't think it's worth it. And yeah, it's called biting your tongue. If you're the type of person that just wants to be in there and say, you're an idiot and that's not right. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing of, do you want to, do you want to have peace or, and nobody's right in any of this. Like what is right? This is so subjective. Politics is so subjective. Um, To a point, I mean, we all, all of us that have a modicum of intelligence kind of go, no, this is, you just can't have people like that running the world. Uh, With racism, it's unacceptable. So on that part of her question, her quandary, I think you absolutely have to stand up and be vocal about racism and about people saying inappropriate, derogatory, hateful, spiteful things. And I don't think, I think being complacent makes you complicit.
1: I feel like there are times looking back on my life where I, I can remember somebody saying something that offended me about, you know, maybe it was a sexual orientation or a or, or race or, or maybe it was sexist and I didn't say anything. Cause I, you know, you're at a dinner party and you don't want to bring up, you don't want to be contentious. But I thought so loudly above my head, like shut that F up. <laughs> I was so annoyed and angry and offended. And I didn't say anything cause you don't want, I was like, Oh, I don't want to ruin everyone's dinner, but this person was ruining everyone's dinner. Well,
0: just in summary, I think you do have to make a choice. You definitely have to stand up for marginalized people to the point where just, I think you could say something like, hey, come on, that's, this isn't the place to be talking like that. And you're kind of making me feel uncomfortable. So, you know, Uh, but to launch yourself into a fight, I don't think it's going to work. I hope that helped you with your. Your quandary, and uh, and I hope you enjoyed the quandary music because it always makes me feel good. Uh, just in the last couple of minutes here, um, I often think I think we don't talk enough about dying. So you know, keeping with the the light uh, jaunty uh, topic of our conundrum, um, there is a crazy kind of Dutch, well not crazy, a biotech company that is really cultivating the whole idea of circle of life. And what they're doing, I mean, the Europeans are so thinking forward. They are making a cocoon coffin, basically. It's essentially bio, a biodegradable coffin, which I love. And it's made out of fung- fungus spores. So you, you get buried in this thing. Um, and you can even be buried in a communal grave, um, but you can be buried by yourself first, and then you can be moved, just so they're not taking up. Well, what do you think of that? It's a, it's a, fu- it's a ca- hard shell. Like you can have it open at the thing for the viewing, but it's it's made out of something that will decompose with you.
1: I think that's great. I'm one of those people where I don't care what you throw me in. I don't do not want a fancy casket. Like pine box, incinerate me, dump me over in an ocean. Like I don't care.
0: Listen to this, Caitlin. It's lined with soft moss.
1: Oh, that's lovely. That seems like the way that, you know, if you were a fairy or some sort of an elf, that's the way you'd return.
0: Covered on the inside with soft green moss for a comfortable final rest. So the living cocoon, they're calling it, is, um, you know, they basically bury you and it decomposes in 35 to 45 days, which is unbelievable
1: that's like that's the way you're supposed to go in my opinion I always liked when they had the option to of cremating you and turning your ashes into a tree like they put your ashes at the bulb of a tree and then it grows into a tree I thought that was nice too
0: well your own body will increase biodiversity and allow new seedlings to thrive and that sounds really sexy to me
1: (laughs) new seedlings yeah I'm into it (laughs) you're listening to (laughs) the Jan Arden podcast we'll be right back
0: back with us, listening to the Jan Arden Podcast. I'm here with Caitlin Green, Adam Karsh, as always, as usual, because we, our motto is three people can't be wrong. That's our motto. <laughs> um, here's my hot topic for the week. I recently was involved in a protest at the Calgary International Airport. And I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you why a group of us went there with our masks, social distancing, a cool Alberta night. Every two weeks out of YYC out of the Calgary airport, a very clandestine operation takes place. And it has been taking place for a long time, probably upwards of 30 plus years, because nobody wants you, the Canadian consumer, to know about it. between 80 and 100 beautiful large breed horses. And if you can picture the Clydesdale type or the Belgian type of horse, picture the Budweiser horse and wagon that you often see in commercials that are being pulled by the huge black giant horses. So picture those, not race horses. And these horses are raised specifically to be eaten by a group of people an ocean away in in Japan. So these horses, every two weeks, between 80 and 100 of them, are loaded four at a time, four horses at a time, into wooden crates. Uh, They're scared to death. They are crapping on each other. They're kicking stalls. They're trying to get out. They are loaded probably at four or five in the afternoon, Um, nobody's around where they're loaded. It's all boarded up. You can't see through there except for a few cracks. So, and then they're all loaded onto a flight that leaves 4am. So imagine them, they've already been in their crates for 12 hours by the time they're loaded on to a Korean air flight that, um, now flies at 4am for 16 hours to Japan and lands there. And you might be asking yourself why, for one thing is Canada live exporting animals of such a majestic nature and why I'm not saying that the meat, the horse meat industry is going to disappear because I know that's not going to happen in Canada. It's a much bigger issue. Some people eat horse. I can't argue with that. And I'm not, that's not where my concern lies. My concern lies with 80 animals, being so mortified. uh, Many times they're dead. There's one or two dead in their crates before they even land. Many times they're crumpled uh, on top of each other in the crates because they just are, they can't stand anymore and they can't take it. The market wants them alive because they have a very specific way of slaughtering them. I'm not going to get into it because there's not one single listener right now that wants to listen to how these horses are killed and what happens to them before they're killed to make the meat a certain way. Let me leave it at that. And in order for the meat to be a certain way, their heart still has to be beating. Let's leave it at that. Um, This happens every two weeks. It's a group of rich guys that are catering to the elite of the elite in Japan. And these guys are quietly making 20 million bucks a year on these horses that they think nobody cares about. That's why we were protesting. And I just want people to know what's going on. Uh, it's a shame in this country, live export in general. I don't know if you and uh, and Adam Caitlin recall just a few weeks ago, a very large shipment of cattle coming from New Zealand, headed to the Mediterranean uh, sunk, killing 4,000 plus cows and uh, the folks on board the the ship. So, you know, live export of animals internationally is is a travesty. This is agriculture taking a very sinister turn. And I think everyone listening would agree that the agriculture of our grandparents and our great-grandparents is so distorted. There are so many blurred lines. There are so many unethical things. And I don't know how we as a society have continually pushed our we've just pushed our sensitivity levels to the point where we we, we just would rather be blind to it. Any comments at this point from either of you would be welcome, but this is why we were
1: protesting. Yeah, it bothers, it bothers me so much, especially also that I didn't know. And I had heard about uh, live animal exporting from um, a, a conversation that you had on a previous episode with Zaya Tong. And it wasn't specific to horses, but it was just about how unnecessary it is in general to live export these animals to other countries to be slaughtered there. Because the transportation process for them is absolutely horrible. So you've added a layer a layer of cruelty that doesn't make any sense. And, uh, when you have, uh, slaughterhouses here in Canada that could be doing the same amount of work if you if you want the Canadian animals and, and that's the, the business that they're in. I just don't understand the process of sending these horses alive overseas or, or any animal alive overseas for that matter, especially in the conditions that you've been talking about. Um, I really don't think your average person knows about it. And I, I just think that the cruelty is just kind of, it's beyond me. I, I don't know. And, and you know just servicing this tiny, little, tiny market of these super wealthy elite. Um, that just it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't get it. Well, what you have to understand is these, these particular horses are bred for this exact market. And a lot
0: of people are saying, yeah, but you know, people buy quarter horses and ponies and stuff and they don't look after them and they don't want to pay the boarding. fee." This is a completely different group of horses. I don't want people to confuse that at all with pets that kind of go sideways with people being, you know, irresponsible for old, you know, we used to talk when we were kids about, you know, old Bessie, she made it to the glue factory. Well, that still very much happens. You know, horse hooves, every part of the horse, th- those things are used um, for all kinds of uh, products that human beings ingest, use in their homes, whatever. Those horses do end up being slaughtered in Canada. And that's uh, there's sixty or 70,000 of those, if not more. I don't know the exact numbers. So these ones on these flights that go out of Calgary – and, and here's a more hideous point of it. We can say what we, whatever you want about the United States. Canada has the worst animal rights of all of the G7. That is known. We are at the bottom of the pyramid. That's shocking. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the Americans ship their horses. They don't do live export in horses. They banned it a long time ago in the United States. In the United States, they banned it. So guess what they do? Yes, you guessed it. They ship them up here they ship them to Manitoba, they ship them to Calgary, they go out of flights in Winnipeg, and they go out of flights. So in in another, you know, week, we'll be doing another protest. Um, And we're going to keep the pressure up. And there is something called the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition, uh, that they are mounting something legally right now, they're on appeal to get this practice stopped. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for letting me get that off my chest.
1: Well, when you care about something you want to talk about it, so uh, like i, I uh, yeah it's it's heartbreaking to see, and I don't think Canadians know about it. I don't think they under and I think your average person when they do know about it, and I've seen it on Twitter now because people are realizing it because public figures like yourself are trying to raise awareness around it, they're shocked and appalled. I'm shocked to learn about that from can- from Canada that we have these horrible this horrible rating amongst g seven countries for our treatment of animals yep. um
0: it's not okay, yep well, listen, there's lots you can do. Uh, On a cheerier note, Leah (laughs) Gautier, Jennifer Harper are going to be with us talking about The Jan Show coming up uh, Monday night, 8 o'clock on CTV. We're going to be talking to them. We have lots more coming up. Stay with us. You can say what you want, but I'm not your little girl. You can stand in my path, but you're never going to change anything that I do. No, you're never going to change me. Well, welcome back. And uh, as promised, we have with us my two co-creators uh, of the Jan Show, beginning to, to uh, air Monday. And um, yes, so Monday, 8 o'clock, CTV Network, you can find us. And then the next day, you can find us on Crave. You have to wait like 24 hours, but it shows up. I am here with Leah Gauthier and Janica Harper. Welcome to the Jan Show. Lifelong dream. You guys look really, you guys look good. We, we do all these podcasts on Zoom so we can see each other's faces. And this is how we did our entire writing room for season three. This is, this is what it looked like. In fact, you guys are in the same clothes. Yeah, I mean, you know, why change?
2: Still wearing these leopard print pajama pants. They're just, so <laughs> they're a staple of this COVID wardrobe.
0: <laughs> okay, so we don't, we, I, I have so many things that I want to ask you and not a whole ton of time. So making a television show, I get asked constantly, "How did you guys get a show that is on the air on a major network?" And I know it's in theory, it kind of sounds like, "Oh yeah, you just write something, you take it to the network, they give you money, you you do it." But that's not how it works. So maybe, Jenica, I'll start with you, and then we'll talk a little bit more about specifically how our show got made and how it ended up. But uh, the business of television, Jenica, and writing—you've been doing it for a long time. Mm-hmm. How, what, how do we tell young writers out there, people that are obviously interested in television, what, what is the to-do list? Where do you start?
3: Yeah. So I would say, okay, the, the, the to-do list of where you start is to try, is to write a lot and to try to, you know to understand TV storytelling and to get good at that and write a lot of scripts. And then your goal as a, so my, my path, Leah and I will talk about our two different paths and they're very different. we come to the same place, but I'll, mine is a bit of a TV writing more conventional route, I guess you could say in the sense that, you know, for many years, my, my sort of my jobs were to be a writer in someone else's writing room and try to, um, you know, write what the showrunner wanted and expected for, for their show. So, you know, I've written on kids' comedies and crime procedurals and, and supernatural shows. And in those shows, I'm trying to write scripts that are um, good and strong and all that stuff, but also um, fulfill what the showrunner's vision of the show is so you're kind of trying to sort of fit you know fit a gap that that is that is needed there and and be part of the creative process that's collaborative and everything
0: so it's not overnight
3: well for
0: me it sure wasn't <laughs> but i mean we we all have to learn our crafts right whether you're a doctor or a lawyer and I, and i try and give people comparisons like When you become a dentist, you don't just show up for a weekend seminar and then you're drilling in people's mouths. Thanks, yeah. You kind of have yeah, well, I mean, I would do it for you anytime. (laughs) anytime. Like (laughs) I I am for $20, I will pull out your front (laughs) teeth. Get them, get them
3: gone.
0: Um, but it it's I guess the practicality of taking something to a network and then get money getting money to to produce it and all those things. There's a lot of moving parts in these things, isn't there?
3: Yeah, let me tell you what what often happens is, so for someone like me, as I'm working on other people's shows, I'm also developing my own ideas and pitches and writing scripts that, you know, for pilot series that like don't exist yet and to take them to producers and to take them to networks. And for a while there, what you're really trying to do is, is sort of um, get into development. And development just means that the network, is sort of floating some money to the team to to get a script written as that kind of proof of concept of like, well, what is the show? What is, who are the characters? What's the tone of it? And you're just sort of hoping that first stage is just to get a script um, and to be able to sort of prove that, you know, yeah, there's a show here. It's going to be really great. So that's what I've done a number of times. And this is the first time that I've been part of a team that went all the way and got that green light and actually got to make that show. So, where you know we can talk more about that, but really I think it's it's people do need to understand that you know that the the if you look at the iceberg that the top of the iceberg is a show getting made and getting on the air, and then yes. everything below you know the the surface of that iceberg is people writing scripts and trying really hard and pitching their guts out at the networks and trying to. Get something going and so and it costs a lot of money to make a season of television so they it really does yeah, it's millions it of really dollars does. they can't just throw that change around to everybody so they have to kind of know that people will come so that's where i think having someone like an iconic s- songwriter and singer in your country <laughs> is very helpful um because uh, like it'll really, open
0: the door but it won't keep it open exactly we, yeah. have to deli- we have to deliver we have to deliver sure they'll come for that first episode check it out curiosity what have you but we have to continually and when I say we I mean you guys as writers have to continually pique their interest yeah um Leah you have a little different way of getting here and I really want people to hear like the abridged version um of how kind of we met and where and how this thing started because this is kind of your fault Leah if I'm honest (laughs) because uh just a little bit of background. Leah did work with me on a couple of tours in, in production, and she was pestering me constantly, like, we should get cameras on here and do, like, a reality show. And uh, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't imagine people being on this bus because it is just a fart tube of insanity. <laughs> so, Leah Gautier, go.
2: Yes, we did meet all those years ago. It's probably been about a decade now that we've been friends. And Easily. I a couple of tours with you as part of the production team. And back then, I worked... Um, strictly in reality and factual TV. So I did a lot of casting and producing of dating shows and child superstar shows and Woo-hoo! the real housewives. And I worked on <laughs> shows like that. So it was top of mind to like when I saw something interesting to tap into, maybe we should follow this as a reality show. But you were never on board for that. It was, <laughs> it was never going to happen as much as I tried and tried. So eventually when I said, what do you think about scripted? You were sort of at a place where you felt ready, I think, because it had been presented to you a a number of times before. And uh, we sat down at your kitchen table and sort of mapped out how you'd like that to look. So my journey to scripted was just the complete opposite to Jenica's. We kind of came from these two different worlds to make this show. I think that's probably part of the success of it is that we have these vastly different viewpoints and we've all come together in this one space to create the best thing possible.
0: What is, um, so yes, we wrote, we, Lee and I sat at our, the kitchen table here at my house and came up with a zany idea. But Jenica, I mean, maybe you can speak to this, but like the, to call the show Jan, I remember how shocked I was when I got the call, call from the producers. I forget who the three of us thought that I was. Like, did I have a name? Was I like Linda Smithers? Nancy Peterson like it don't it, someone fill me in on that because I know calling it the Jan show basically was
3: like an 11th hour decision Janica do you know yeah I mean I think that Leah and I our dream was always that your name was Jan was it yeah we really you got really a little felt... bit freaked
2: out for a minute yeah a minute. <laughs> guys guys <that's> <laughs> we, we, <call>
3: <laughs> we <laughs> thought the funniest version was you're playing a fictional version of yourself in, in that Larry David curb your enthusiasm kind of vein. And we did at, at one point we were going to call you like Jan Nielsen or something like that. That was sort of like, okay, it's kind of like her, but don't get freaked out everybody. It's not really her. She's not really this huge jerk narcissist. Mm-hmm. Um, But in the end, we, we kind of kept coming back around to that conversation and we were having conversations with the producers as well. And just being like, all of us couldn't get it out of our heads. It's just the purest version of that juxtaposition was wouldn't it be so funny if we pretended this was really her (laughs) and And I think
2: that when you decided to go with your actual name is when you decide to let it all go and you sort of just committed to being (laughs) this version of yourself that is a
0: bit so. Self-absorbed, so uh, yeah, a, a little bit. She, she's. Uh, I'm glad I'm not her. I mean, if, <laughs> if I ever, all? if I ever become that, if I ever become that, just really slap me. Um, your favorite part about filming? What, what is it? I know that we all go kind of nutty for craft services, and for anyone out there who doesn't know what craft services are, it kind of sounds like exactly what it is. It's food, uh, it's candies and junk and sandwiches and chips and and they feed us all day because we have long days. But I, there's. The three of us, especially, um, we, you guys have your favorites. I, I, I know when the chips come around, it's, it's quite a popular moment.
2: Well, for me, in terms of filming, <laughs> I have so many, so many things that I love about it. It's like hard to choose one. But I think one of the top ones is when we put you into physical comedy situations where you're in a garbage can <laughs> or strung up on a barbed wire fence or falling out of a car. <laughs> <You kind> of <laughs> <elected Bruce laughs> to put you in situations where you hate your life.
0: Well, don't forget falling off of a a bull, uh, a mechanical bull, I will say. Um yeah, it's very fun. The physical comedy was really fun. and And the two of you steal from my life. Let's face it, you you eavesdrop. Um, for those of you who don't may not know this, we have done the first two uh, writing rooms. I know that Adam is going he's going ballistic because I can't see him. so we're gonna be right back. We're going to be right. You're listening to the Jan Arden show. We've gone nine minutes over. We apologize. We have no sponsor. We'll be back. Welcome back to the Jan Arden Podcast. Oh, yeah, we have music and so much more. We're here with Jennifer Harper, Leah Gauche, two writers from The Jan Show, co-creators. Uh, our show starts Monday night at 8 o'clock on CTV. Don't miss it. It's so hilariously funny. What's your um, – so I, this, this is kind of a little bit, a bit off topic, but in a perfect world, if you were going to – like have your own projects developed. Cause I know both of you guys work on stuff all the time and that you're working on stuff without giving too much away to other writers that might steal your ideas. Are you guys like actively writing new fantastic game of Thrones type things?
3: Uh, yeah. You haven't heard of it. We're uh, totally producing game of Thrones, the sequel. It's going to be a uh, toilet of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that actually almost makes me want to do it, to do like some kind of period fantasy thing. If you're going to be in it, as like some, you know, dame of something, that that sounds exciting to me. We are writing. uh, We're, yeah, Leah and I are always writing different things. Some things where we have ideas together, and then some things we are pursuing sort of on our own. And just uh,
2: while I was falling asleep, for some reason, I came up with this concept for a thriller a film (laughs) that I immediately woke up and wrote in the notes of my phone. And then the next day I called Jenica. I'm like, what are you doing with your life? Do you want to write like a film together that really only involves two people in one location? it's a very COVID friendly thriller,
0: horror. Well, I think everyone's sort of thinking in those terms. Um, People need to know that we were finished season two, Long well, like four months before COVID sort of hit. So when people watch the series, they're going to see huge group scenes with hundreds and
3: hundreds of extras. So I, it's going to be weird to see that. I'm actually really excited about that part because I think it's going to look like kind of what you're saying. It's going to look so incredible that it's like it's going to be mind blowing. It was already kind of mind blowing because we have these huge set pieces. We have an awards show. We have um, you know, big gala dinners and, um, even just like a kid's school concert is like, just like, you know, a couple hundred people in a gym. And so it's going to seem like it's from another time, but I think in a good escapist way, I think it's going to be a very joyful viewing experience.
2: Yeah. That's what we've been saying. We've been breaking season three is that we were so happy that season two, we went really big with it because right now looking back, it's such a gift to be able to watch all these episodes and just feel a sense of normalcy.
0: Yeah. Do you watch TV now when you see like kissing scenes or or scenes with people people shaking hands, even simple things like that? You're kind of going, oh
3: my gosh, they're shaking hands. What, it's an outrage. Or like eight people in an elevator and you're like, are you people all crazy? What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I mean, that's been the biggest questions asked of me is like, how are you guys going to go forward filming? and, And we've taken so much of that into consideration. Like when you guys are writing now, which you're putting the the episodes together now for season three. Do do you have that in mind of how you can place your characters and, and how you can have them interacting? Are you really, really aware of their physicality?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest change for us, which, you know, as you know, we were already talking about season three being a bit more intimate and a bit more focused on our characters, a little bit more grounded anyway. So we were, again, really lucky that all the stuff we'd been talking about as our dreams for season three were, there were a lot of like characters, you know, two two character stories where that's the whole, that's the whole, um, you know, plot kind of thing. So we were really lucky that way. But I would say there's definitely times where we're hoping there's going to be seven people in a room interacting, and I hope we can do that. <laughs> you know,
2: right now are actually working on a, a, a one of the episodes where the entire family is in one space mm-hmm. sharing a meal. And that the kind of structuring the way people are moving around in that space is one of the most difficult parts of it, to be honest. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, there's a lot of filming going on right now. I know a lot of productions are up and running. I mean, I can just see it on my Instagram feed, my Twitter feed, that they're creating these pods. I worked on a TV show earlier. I've talked about it on this show. Um, I worked on it in June, and it was very successful. They haven't had one incident. It's extremely clean. And for all you kind of uh, germaphobes out there, COVID has kind of been a blessing because those people are like, hooray, finally, global hygiene. I don't have to, you know ever take
3: this mask off and feel like a weirdo. So another thing that I think is helpful is I find film industry people extremely diligent about, well, first of all, they everybody's unionized. So people are very serious about health and safety. And there's always like, yeah. these, you know, there's serious protocols plus serious, um, you know, guidelines that everybody gets the, these huge documents and everything. And I find film people very, you know, they're, they, they, they don't come to play. Like they really mean, um, business. And so everyone is looking to protect, um, not only themselves and everybody they're working with, but also like the ability to go to work. And so everybody knows the ability for everybody to go to work rests on, you know, being diligent, being truthful, following those guys. Cooperative. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, I found the set really cheery, lots of laughing, you know, you, you kind of have to, I think all our hearing it's going to be a sense that's really developed because we can't really hear what anyone's saying. You're like, what? You, you know, cause you're speaking through these masks. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a wacky question, but I want to know what you guys, your favorite childhood lunches were in your school boxes, what you took Leah. Like I, I we asked people on this show and I just think it's so fun. And I obviously have caught you by surprise, but like what was a memorable childhood lunch?
2: To be honest, I mean, I think it was pretty, pretty basic and pretty similar every day, but also I was lucky enough that we lived beside the school. And back in that, the, the, that time, I could just... So you walked I, home? I could leave the school grounds and go home for lunch. So I would have a lot of grilled cheese sandwiches. But I think one, the thing that I remember the most when he was asking that question is one time my mom packing a kiwi fruit and sending me to school with it, and the... <laughs> The embarrassment, like when I pulled this key <laughs> this paper bag,
0: I was like, I'm going to die.
3: Why? That would be super cool now. You'd be like, oh, la-di-da, Leah has a kiwi Oh, it'd be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> that is well, so I mean,
0: you, Leah. My hair That is so. It's so you, because... <laughs> You're so sensitive about things. I can just see your little Leah Gauche face pulling out a freaking kiwi. I wouldn't have known what to do with the kiwi. I
2: ate it inside the bag. It also, it came with a spoon to, like, <laughs> scoop it out of its shell. So I like, remembered because I wanted to eat it, but I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Did so you go to the bathroom
3: it? and eat a
0: kiwi? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Jeez. You must have been so cute. What did you drink? Did you have a drink? <laughs> um
2: i I, don't know, I think we had juice boxes. I'm pretty sure we had juice boxes every day
0: leah Leah just turned forty, so for those of you that want to know, I've revealed her age she she just had her fortieth birthday, and a classic line that Leah said to me, we got together for a few days last week we We were able to get together and go hang out but um Leah was just saying, I was looking at a picture in her apartment. I'm like, oh my God, that looks so great. Everyone was in Gold LeMay. It was this big Vegas birthday party. Like everything seems so weird to look at now. And Leah goes, oh my God, my 40th birthday. What a year, a complete waste of a year. Of that 40th year where you think, well, you can think back now and go, you know, what, what were you doing when you were 40? You're never gonna forget this. Janica, what was your favorite childhood lunch and you have a little girl so i i i want i want to ask twofold
3: your lunch and her lunch so- okay so my favorite school lunches were you know those thermoses they're like the stubby thermoses the like little like squat yes. squat little ones so one of those filled with like alphagetti something like that oh spaghetti or alfagetti that was a real real banner day in my house <laughs> and it's like garbage right it's it's like tomato flavored garbage but it was no, it's so not good to have that warm like comfort foody kind of vibe Um, we don't send our child with anything like that. (laughs) We've never sent anything warm once. (laughs) It's just like not (laughs) worth it. So it's a, it's a lot of mini bagels and wraps, you know, little wrap up things with hummus and stuff like that. Um, she's fairly picky, but she'll eat the carrots and all that stuff, but she's not a big sandwich person, which is disappointing to us because my husband and I are like, love a sandwich. I don't know. I, yeah. Go ahead, Leah.
2: Maybe she'll grow into loving the sandwich. Maybe that's more of an adult
3: vibe. We'll just keep modeling the sandwich eating. (laughs) Well, you guys uh, stole a lunch
0: idea from me once for the show, uh, which I can't give away too much, but it ended up as part of a quite a hilarious song in season two. But uh, my mom sent me not, I mean, the Alphagetti would have been great. But in my thermos, my regular sized drink thermos for like hot chocolate, she put a wiener (laughs) into hot water, like just a hot dog wiener, a raw one, (laughs) and twisted the cap on. And I remember telling you guys this story. When I got to school, I was in sixth grade um, and I took the lid off. I had, it was, this was unbeknownst to me. This is unbeknownst to me. So uh, the wiener had absorbed all the water as it does. And uh, I couldn't, you know, and I know I've talked about this before, but it's obviously seared into my mind. Um, What would be your favorite lunch now? We've got a couple minutes left, and I know we we should be talking about the Jan show, but I want to know a little bit more about you. Desert Island meal, like what would be one of your favorite? Okay, let me ask you this. What would be the last meal that you had? Leah? Well, maybe I'd, I would probably choose, since I
2: developed an adult allergy to lobster, but if I was dying anyway, <laughs> take the, lobster, take the uh take the allergic reaction and drop dead. Oh, do you like lobster? I do. It's a real shame.
0: So what happens to you when you eat it? Well, <laughs> twice
2: <laughs> I threw up, and I was like, this cannot be a coincidence, and <laughs> the third time there was a bit of a swelling of the tongue situation that was enough for me to be like, I'm calling it. This is not
0: okay.
3: You know. Leah would die of lobster anyway. Jenica, last minute of the show. I'd be full carb and dairy situation. It would be like some amazing pasta, like a really hot, you know, high quality cheesy something like that. I think I just have to face that that is the case. Yes.
0: I'm gonna make you guys. I mean, if maybe we could just get an EpiPen, but I'm gonna make you some kind of cheesy pasta with lo- chunks of lobster on it and and I and I'm vegan but I'll still overlook that
3: and, and I'm also allergic to shellfish,
0: so I will definitely have a throat situation if I ever want to do away with you guys this is such <laughs> yeah you only die once so let's do it yeah listen Jan show airs Monday night uh this Monday it starts airing for eight weeks on CTV you can catch it the next day on Crave but eight o'clock Monday nights we're so I'm so proud of you guys, the way that you have conducted yourself and written you've, you know, it all comes from the top on down and the writers have so much to do with setting the tone of the show. Um, they're there 14 hours a day with everybody else watching things unfold and changing little things as you guys go. And, but I, I have to say, I'm so proud of, of you and the entire writing team. If I didn't have anything to say, there would be no show. So just know that, you know, it, it all starts with the writing, everybody out there. It all starts with these brilliant people. Leah Gauthier has been here today. Jenica Harper, congratulations to you guys on season two. And of course, on season three, thanks for, thanks for giving this old girl a job. And uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, I love you guys, and, and we'll see you soon. And the best is yet to come. Thank you so much for listening to the Jen Podcast. Don't eat lobster if you're allergic to it. I'm... Uh, Hope to see you next week. We're so grateful for our listeners week after week after week and all your support. Write us at the Jan Arden podcast on Twitter and let us know what you want us to talk about. See you next time. Tudu.
3: This podcast is distributed by the women in media podcast network. Find out more at women in